0: It's Aspen Ideas To Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. We're gearing up for a podcast takeover. Starting next week, we'll drop a series of special episodes from the 2016 Aspen Ideas Festival. I'll hand over the mic to six podcast takeover hosts who will be on the ground at the festival. So we have time to prep for the takeover. We're rebroadcasting an episode we released in August of last year. It's a discussion from the 2015 Aspen Ideas Festival called, Is Violence a Function of Our Culture? It's one of our most popular episodes. This episode features Mitch Landrew, ta Coates, and Jeffrey Goldberg in a discussion about violence in American culture. Homicide remains an endemic, seemingly unsolvable problem in America, and violent crime afflicts African-American communities to a much greater degree than others, as does mass incarceration and police violence. What is the cause of the crisis? What is the role of culture? Are there any solutions? Landrieu is the mayor of New Orleans and has been confronting this crisis head-on. Podcast listeners may recall his talk at the 2014 Aspen Ideas Festival. It inspired the Aspen Institute to focus on violence in American culture as a thematic track at this year's festival. Atlantic Magazine national correspondent ta Coates has written widely on matters of race, policing, and American history. His memoir, Between the World and Me, was published last month and is currently number one on the New York Times bestseller list. Written in the form of letters to his teenage son, Coates' book is a literary exploration of America's racial history. Jeffrey Goldberg, national correspondent for The Atlantic, moderates the discussion. Here are Mitch Landrew, Ta-Nehisi Coates, and Jeffrey Goldberg.
1: Um, so this is the mayor of New Orleans, uh, Mitch Landrieu, uh, who all of you know here, and who is, yeah, let's give him a round of applause. Um, he is one of America's leading mayors. Um, obviously, much of his work uh, these past uh, months and years has been to rebuild his city uh, after Katrina. He's coming up on the 10th anniversary uh, uh, in August. Uh, and so we're very glad to have you here. Um, Ta-Nehisi Coates is my friend and colleague from The Atlantic. Uh, Weren't you voted like the most important intellectual or something by some website? No, I think there was some website. Anyway, he's a very, very important intellectual. (laughs) Thank you. and... Uh, voted by
2: you. What? Voted by you.
1: Yeah, I, yeah, I voted it. <laughs> uh, oh, the line just dropped through the floor, right, by did. the way. Uh, the... Uh, all right, we're going to stop joking around because this is okay. serious. It or is at least serious. for two minutes, we're going to not joke around. Okay. The, um, the Ta-Nehisi, uh, of course, national correspondent of the Atlantic. Uh, many of you... Uh, the whole country is familiar with uh, one of his most recent pieces, The Case of Reparations. Uh, so how, how this came about is, 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 is kind of interesting. Uh, I've been talking to uh, Mitch, I'm going to call you Mitch, even Please. though you have an official title. Um, Sorry. Right. Uh, I've been talking to Mitch for several months now over a project I'm working on at The Atlantic about uh, about crime in, in, in cities. Uh, and. I would sometimes come back from New Orleans and, uh, and I would mention to ta something and he would, he would have some comment about it and I would go back to Mitch and then Mitch would say something to ta and I thought, you know, I don't need to be like the Middle East peace negotiator here. I can just have them come directly to Aspen. Through the miracle of Aspen, we can get them on the same stage to have this conversation. The conversation is about some very, very hot-button, sensitive issues. Uh, the, 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 the statistic that... Um, appalls me and, and horrifies me and makes me interested in, in the work that Mitch is doing. And we're gonna to turn to you in a second to talk, give a brief overview of the work. Uh, the statistic that, that, that doesn't leave my head is the following. Since 1980, 315,000 African Americans have been murdered in the United States. Uh, and you could place that number in context, if you will, uh, in, in a minute. In New Orleans, I think the number is roughly 7,000. Uh, African-American males have been murdered. Um, the vast majority of those murders uh, are committed by other African-American males. The jails are filled with African-Americans who are in jail for felonies. And so the question uh, that, that, that the mayor has grappled with, and it's interesting that he's done this in a city where that has so many other challenges at the moment, including rebuilding from a devastation. Uh, the, the, the challenge that the mayor has taken on is to figure out a way to end this problem to end this devastation in certain poor African-American communities. So I wanna just start, if you can give us a couple of minutes okay. of overview of A, what you're doing, and B, and more important for the purpose of this discussion, why you're doing it, and, 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 and tell us about the nature of the problem in
3: okay. your analysis of the problem, and then we'll just jump right in. All right, Jeff, thank you, and it's great to finally meet you. Uh, and to Walter and to the whole Aspen family, and to Kitty, thank you for programming the issue of violence into the Aspen DNA because it's really important. So let me just see if I can frame this very broadly, forty thousand, thirty thousand, and then I'll get down to the ground and I'll try to do it in about three or four minutes. The big frame is that the United States of America is heading in the right direction, that we're actually a safer country than we have been, that racially we're better than we were fifty years ago. Um but as well as the country is doing, we are leaving a lot of people behind and we can't be as good as what we want to be, what we aspire to be, or what do we profess to be if everybody doesn't come with us. And that forces us to have very difficult conversations that include things uh, that always involve race, which are really hard for us because we don't know how to do it well. And so I'll say you can't go around it, you can't go over it, you can't go under it, you gotta go through it. And we're having that conversation voluntarily, and involuntarily in the country. And in that context comes the destruction of New Orleans. Thank you all so much for helping us stand back up. The city is doing spectacularly well. We have turned ourselves around. We've reconstructed our education system, our healthcare system, all of that stuff that we had to do we're doing and you'd be amazed at really how, what position the city's in right now. And Jeff is right as the mayor, I'm doing all of those things. But what happens to me is that every day I don't have my phone with me, but I get a text from my police chief and it's pretty much the same thing every day. And I am making do it. Mr. Mayor, I'm sorry to advise you that last night at about two o'clock in the morning, shots rang out in lower nine in the seventh ward in Girtown, Central City. We arrived at the scene. We found a young African-American male laying face down on the ground, head blown out. Uh, he was dead on arrival over and over and over again. So in the context of what my father told me on the day of my inauguration, he once was the mayor and I was looking for great advice. And I said, can you tell me how to be the mayor? He said, you own every pothole now. And in that regard, what he was trying to tell me is that I'm responsible for everything in the city. And so as this continued to happen, day after day after day after day, I continued to tell my team, this is, something's wrong, what is going on? And then I started to look into this issue and what I found was startling to me and it will startle you. Uh, But uh, suffice it to say that I made the decision that the city of New Orleans can never be a great place if everybody in this city doesn't come along with us And who are the ones who are being hurt the most? Who are the ones who are most marginalized? Who are the ones that need the most help? And if lives are important and if black lives matter, and by the way, this is way before that slogan came about, we really ought to be thinking about how many kids are getting killed on the streets of New Orleans pretty much every day. So because I'm kind of defensive about my city and I know that we don't live in isolation and we're part of this great United States of America, I kind of started looking around and seeing whether this was just because I was a bad mayor I mean, are you a bad guy you can't protect the streets of the city why is this happening why can't you stop it i needed to know what it was what the cause of it was and this was really about saving a person's life it's really simple saving a person's life where do you fight crime you fight crime where it is where do you save people you save people wherever they are so you go to where the problem is then you have to identify it so i did and i looked around and what i found out was since 1980 in the united states of america 630,000 american citizens have been killed on the streets of America, 630,000. I didn't really have any context for that, so I didn't know whether that was, it sounded like a lot to me, right? It sounded like that's not a place where I really wanted to live. And I started thinking about it because we have the World War II Museum in New Orleans that commemorates the greatest generation. Come to find out that 630,000 since 1980 is more American citizens than were killed in all of the wars of the 20th century. Let me say that again. All of the american citizens killed in all of the wars of the 20th century world war one world war two all of it that's when i said you know what we got a problem and there is a culture of violence that permeates in certain segments of the united states of america and by the way it is white and it is black but what i was concerned about were the people that i was responsible for and people were getting killed in my city and this is what those numbers look like Uh, about somewhere between 150 to 200 a year eight times the national average 95% of the victims of crime in my city, young African-American men they're between 16 and 25 and 88% of them know each other. That's my reality as the mayor of the city. And I want to find an answer to that, which led me into this discussion. And the first disagreement that he and I had when we never talked is I have used the phrase, a culture of violence that evidently tweaks people's brains and says, it's really not a culture. And oh, black people are not as bad as white people. And as many white people get killed. got into this whole discussion about race and how we see each other. And I use the term because I used it in a, in a specific way. And that is a pattern of behavior that developed over time that has produced a certain result over and over again so that it became a normative action for some people, because in my city, when I talk to my young men who I speak with on a frequent basis, they say, Hey man, marriage killer, be killed. Um, I have a gun because if I don't have one, somebody's gonna shoot me, I have to protect myself. It's very rational to wanna shoot somebody if you feel threatened. And so we have been trying to investigate what this is, how it works, what it really means, and how we get into finding a way to move the city from a city of violence into a city of peace. And by the way, it's only in four or five neighborhoods in the city, so here's my problem. You wanna come to my city, don't you? Because the city's wonderful. It's a spectacular place. We've got the Essence Festival, the Jazz Festival, and you wanna ask me, is your city safe? Somebody asked me that. Is your city safe? Is your city safe? Yeah, it depends. <laughs> if you are a tourist coming into town, if you're a middle class African-American or a middle class white, and you're coming to my city and you want to come enjoy it, you're as safe in my city as you are any place else in the world. But if you're a young African-American man and you have a problem getting a job and you've had some interaction with the criminal justice system and you live in one of four neighborhoods, you're an endangered species. And by the way, this is an epidemic all over America, in every city, in five, six, seven neighborhoods, you get into an issue where you have a huge problem. And that is the essential problem that I'm trying to address, trying to solve, and trying to have a thoughtful discussion about it, because if I'm not speaking about it in the right way, and I'm not engaging people in the right way, then something's wrong, because this is a problem that has to be solved, and it can be solved.
1: So ta I, I know a couple of your allergies, knowing you pretty well. Um, hazelnuts. Uh, and the term black on black crime. Brazil nuts. Brazil nuts. Brazil nuts. Brazil nuts. Uh, what do you have against Brazil? Right, the, um, the, uh, when I first mentioned one of these conversations to you that I was having with the mayor, uh, and we were talking about the culture of violence in, in these communities, uh, the, uh, you, you reacted by, by talking about some of the work that you did on the reparations piece, which is. Uh, long-term segregation, housing discrimination, education discrimination. And, and your argument, and you've made this argument in other pieces, um, is that to talk about culture is to kind of avoid talking about all the sort of structured racism that we've had over the past 400 years in this country that have led to certain conditions. So, Just talk about that a little bit and, and react to what the mayor is talking about in terms of the, the, the importance of culture or the lack of importance of culture.
2: Well, I'll I'll try to unspool this uh, for you guys, if I can. Um, Yeah, I I am first and foremost a product of of Baltimore, Maryland, uh, my family in Baltimore, Maryland, uh, and very much Baltimore City Public Schools. And I'll tell you guys a story that I I tell all the time. I I can remember being uh, about, uh, I guess I would have been about 11 years old, uh, and going off to middle school. Uh, And and this was the point where it dawned on me that I lived in a very, very uh, different world um, every morning when I got up and you know, got dressed uh, to go to middle school and I got my stuff together, it was an entire ritual that, that I, I had to take myself through. Um, that ritual generally concerned how I was dressed. Uh, it concerned uh, how I you know, was gonna wear my backpack. Was I gonna strap it over one shoulder or two shoulders? How was I gonna cock my baseball hat? Was I gonna you know, wear it straight on and cock it to the left, cock it to the right? How was I gonna wear my pants? Was I gonna wear them really baggy or not? Which shoes was I gonna wear? Who was I gonna walk with to school? How many of them were gonna be with me? It had to be all boys, it always had to be all boys, it could never be girls. Where were those boys from? Which route were we gonna to take to school? Were we gonna take the long right route down Tioga Parkway, uh, across Oak, and up Duke Lynn Hill? Were we gonna cut through the woods? Were we gonna go up Liberty Heights? And then once I got to school, after I was in class, you know, in what class was supposed to be, um, there was an entire ritual that I had to go through at lunchtime. Was I actually you know, gonna go to lunch that day? Was I gonna try to you know, cut lunch and wander the hallways? Was I gonna go to the library instead of going to lunch? And then after school, how was I gonna go home? Was I gonna go home right away? Was I going to stay for coach class, which was not actually coach class. There were other reasons that I'm getting to for why I would stay for coach class. And when I left, again, who was I walking with? How many of them was it? Which direction was I taking? Was I going to take the very, very long route all the way up towards Rice's Town and then catch the subway back home? Was I going to go to my grandmother's house that day? Every single one of those decisions was totally uh, committed to the mission of keeping violence from being done to my body. That was the entirety of what all of those rituals were about. I say this all the time. As a student in Baltimore City Public School, particularly right around middle school and going into high school, I would say each day, a third of my brain was dedicated to negotiating violence. Um, and I knew this, and I felt like some degree of you know, injustice about this, even though I couldn't quite articulate why that was. And I knew that like uh, when I talked to you know, my cousins, for instance, who lived in Philadelphia, when I talked to my father's friends who lived in Chicago, who were roughly my age or about my age, they lived under the same sort of situation. They went through the same sort of rituals every day. I knew that my brother, you know, my older brother, for instance, went through the same sort of rituals every day. I knew that my older brother, in fact, you know, as I've talked about before, had a handgun that he had hidden in his bomber jacket in our closet. And at night I would come home and I would, you know, think about all this, you know, and I knew that like the connection between obviously me and my brother and my cousins and all those, you know, young folks I knew in Chicago was that all of us were black. And that for some reason we had very, very similar rituals, even though we were in, you know, different cities. And I suspect if you go gone to New Orleans about that time and maybe even today, you would find a similar sort of ritual that young uh, African, male, African American males and females also go through to shield themselves against violence. Well, I, I would come home and I would cut on the TV at night and um, I would look at the shows beamed into my house. I would watch Family Ties or The Wonder Years or, you know, whatever was popular at that time Beaver to Beaver in syndication or whatever. And I was struck by the gulf between the world in which I lived and the world that America projected out to uh, the rest of the world. And so I knew, you know, as an African American, as a member of a minority population, that these sort of rituals that we went through, I think what, what the mayor would call a culture of violence, but I would call a culture of self-preservation. Um, I, I knew that this was particular to me, that this was not the case for the rest of the world. I, I, I don't so much uh, disagree you know, with the mayor in terms of um, if you live certain places, you develop certain practices. I don't disagree with that at all. I think that's patently true. It's certainly true of my experience. I think what we often miss when we talk about culture is it becomes an easy way to not acknowledge the fact that people are actually making rational decisions within the, uh, the life, within the structures, within the places that they live. And I think like, that's very, very hard uh, for us to get. And to you know, say to me, for instance, when I was a kid, well, you probably shouldn't think as much about how you're dressed. You should think more about school. Was to effectively speak uh, Spanish to me. I would not have been able to understand or translate what you were saying, because I was concerned with the preservation of my body. If I can't secure my safety, then everything else you're saying to me has no sort of uh, uh, meaning at all. How was that
1: culture Mm -hmm. created? the culture in which you had to spend a third of your life. space. Well, that was space. the great
2: question I had, and it's re- actually it's the very reason why I'm a writer, and I think you know, it, it's quite clear how that culture is created. African-American life in this country has been violent from the moment we got here in 1619. There's always been a culture of violence, a culture of violence that was put upon us. I mean, I'm sorry to take you guys through the long history lesson, but we have 250 years of slavery. We have 150 years of Jim Crow, which is violence, uh, and during that period, we have red to make sure we herd certain people into certain neighborhoods. Uh, we deprive those neighborhoods of resources we deprive those neighborhoods of jobs. we create what, what you know, people call what sociologists call criminogenic conditions and then we 're shocked that the murder rate is higher there. Why are you shocked who's shocked by this? why wouldn 't the murder rate be high i mean that, that statue you gave at the beginning was certainly horrifying, but it 's also to be expected if you render an honest you know, reading of american history i, I don 't it horrifies me, but it doesn't necessarily you know, shock me. And just, I just want to you know, close this out by getting back to your question about black-on-black crime. I, I object to that phrase not because I object to the numbers, or I think the numbers are cooked up, or anything like that. People tend to kill who they live around, period. That's just true for, if you study violence, that's just true of, of anything. I don't know, I mean, you're talking about the most segregated population in America, through the vast majority of the 20th century and into the 21st century. I don't know who else would do the killing. But when we use the term black on black crime, we ignore the fact that the fact that black people live in this condition in the first place did not happen by accident. It's a result of policy
3: decisions that we actually made. You want me to respond? To I one? want you to respond to it. We actually have no disagreements. We're stuck on language. So my question is, do you want me to stop caring about black kids who are getting slaughtered on my streets? Of course not. Oh, okay. good. Okay, of not. so if we, can, if we can agree on that, then we can get past the issue of language because <clears throat> when I'm speaking about the culture of violence and you're talking about the general culture of how you get to school and how you don't get back to school and how you need to be safe, that, and by the way, for the white people in this room that don't live in an African-American neighborhood, that is daily life. The same way when you feel when you're getting out of your car and you're in a dangerous situation and you got your bags and you hope somebody doesn't hit you on the head going into your school, every African-American kid in all of my neighborhoods in the city of New Orleans feel that way every day. So he's completely right about that. What I'm saying is this, is that, and, and so then you, you gotta get to the next question, which is why is the culture that way? There is clearly a pattern of behavior that has developed amongst young African-American men since 1980 in this country. And I wanna just put it there because that's where the statistics show that mirror the same kind of behavior that that Italians had in the thirties when the mafia was doing their thing. And the same thing in the wild west where the practice has been because the culture forced it to become this way that the way we solve our problem is that we shoot each other in the head and kill each other rather than have a fight. That pattern of behavior has actually happened. And I think what, what he's saying is, and, and, and I, I want you guys to be aware of this, that African-American men between 16 and 35 are an endangered species in certain neighborhoods in the United States of America. So I don't wanna quarrel with you about the language. I'll accept whatever language you want me to use. What I wanna do is keep the country focused on the fact that 7,000 African-American men were killed on the streets of America last year. And while it is true that white people kill and black people kill, if you focus on who the killer is, if you focus on the victim, African-Americans are about 10% of our population but are 40 to 50 percent of the victims and so if someone was saying just like when hillary clinton spoke the other day she was talking about disparities in education outcomes etc etc and i don't know why the nation's hair is not on fire about this the victims of violent crime are disproportionately african-american men and i want to try to find a way to solve that problem which then gets you into the hard questions about well how did this culture actually get develop because guess what, when you ask that question, everybody in this room has to get involved in that conversation, then it takes you to the institutions, it takes you to the community, it takes you to a bunch, I'm simply saying to the country, that is an unacceptable state of affairs for that many American citizens to be killed the way they killed on the streets of America, and we should address that problem. Wait, However, can I Can I
2: So I just want to get to this point about uh, 1980s. You know, it's very interesting when I talk to my dad, and he talks about you know he grew up in Philadelphia, um, actually much worse circumstances than I grew up in. And he, when he talks about navigating the streets, he talks about it in much the same way I do. You don't think it has you know something to do with the uh, the greater prevalence of handguns?
3: Yeah, no, it has to do with a whole bunch of stuff. I'm just saying, I'm just if, just if you look at the numbers. The kinds of murders and the way they happened, who killed and who was shot, something changed around 1980 that for the last 30 years put us someplace where another group of the community was in the 1930s and another group of the community was back in the 1850s. And that cultural pattern of behavior, the, the, the important question is, why did that happen? Why did it develop? What it was, was it related to? And can we go back and find the root cause and decide to change it? If really, and this is gonna be a little bit tough, if black lives matter, so in my view, Baltimore, Ferguson, was about whether the criminal justice system treated African-Americans equally and consequently as valuable as white lives. But I'm talking about the existence. Nobody's really talking about the deaths me, of young African-American let, men on the streets of America that this. live in neighborhoods that nobody ever goes to, including middle-class African-Americans and middle-class let, whites. Let me ask you this, because
1: we've talked about this and I've, I've watched you in action on this, and you get pissed off at, middle-class African-American communities, and you get pissed off at, 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 at whites for, for valuing black lives differently. And this is, I, I, I don't want to put words in, I don't want to put your argument back in your mouth, but, but you have asked the question publicly in your city, why aren't there demonstrations and mass rallies of Black Lives Matter when it is uh, young African-Americans killing young African-Americans as Again, to the police? I mean, so talk I mean, about I mean, that feeling, so and I want Tanazi to, forgive to me respond. me if
3: I'm using the wrong language, and, and you can cure my, my language, but I want, I don't find anybody marching on City Hall when a young man gets his brains blown out. Since the shootings in South Carolina, which the whole nation stopped on, as we should, and this is a moment in the country that we should seize and move to a better place. 40 Americans every one of those days was killed on the streets of America, and half of them are young African-American men whose heads were blown off in my city, and not one person has raised about it. Because maybe we feel, we can't touch that. Maybe that's not us. And for middle-class African-Americans who, by the way, can be just like middle-class whites who are busy raising their kids, sending their kids to college, they're saying, well, why are you asking me just because I'm African-American? Those are not my kids either. So maybe it's about poverty. Maybe it's about alienation. I'm saying to you that we have American citizens who are getting killed every day. And guess what? If white people are getting killed this way, we should care about that too because lives do matter. And when you have that kind of violence, that only rears its head when it happens, let's say on Bourbon street. Now, if a black kid gets killed on Bourbon street, when everybody's down there for the essence festival, they for the jazz festival and CNN and everybody comes, somebody got killed in the city. Then all of a sudden you start thinking, my city's unsafe when five or six kids could have gotten killed two or three days before and nobody raises the issue. And that does aggravate me. It frustrates me to death because I'm the one that helps peel them off the street. I go to the funerals. i talk to the mothers, the searing pain in the community over these deaths is just almost mind-boggling and heart-taking. I can just tell you as a mayor, my city will never be able to stand up and be as full and as beautiful and as wonderful as it should be if every one of our citizens are not safe. Ta
1: let me let me follow this by, by, by noting something that you've obviously noticed, which is that there's a dominant narrative on on the right in this country that that African-American leadership in this country is hypocritical on the issue of violence. Because when one black kid gets shot by a cop, it provokes nationwide outrage, but you have thousands of kids dying across the country each year. You've heard this narrative, obviously. Right. I want you to respond to that narrative. Well, and first explain, of all, let me yeah. say,
3: I don't agree with that narrative. I think that's wrong, and I think that narrative is a cop-out. It doesn't mean that what I said is essentially not true.
2: Well, I, I, well first of all, I've got to applaud the, the mayor's passion, which I think is real and genuine. Um, I want to say that before I, you know, before I respond, you know, because I don't want um, people to think that, um, and I don't want you to think, you know, I doubt that you actually care about it, you know, it's just like false motives or anything like that. Uh, that said, I have to say, uh, I can't speak for New Orleans, although I think I, I bet I could speak for New Orleans, but I'm not going to. I'm not going to. Um, the, the notion that black people uh, do not march and do not protest against violence in their own com- communities is just patently false. Uh, it's uttering completely, I mean, um, I, you know, I don't want to you know, send people to uh, my blog on the Atlantic, but I've responded to this charge before. I mean, African Americans around the country uh, constantly, constantly hold stop the violence marches in Chicago, in Detroit, in Baltimore, where I'm from, in D.C. I noticed because when I was growing up in the community, it's all we saw. That was the constant thing. It was a great, as you know, Jeff, great hip hop record called Self Destruction. It was literally called Self Destruction. It was not focused on police violence. It was fo- focused on what you guys would call black on black crime. Um, I know this because you know, I live in Harlem right now. And at least, you know, every couple, you know, months or so, there's some sort of march coming down Lenox Avenue that's protesting. I mean, literally, like I was walking down the street with my with my wife uh, just like two weeks ago. And we got a flyer on this, you know, stop the violence. They weren't, you know, marching about Mr. something down Mr. in Mr. South Baker, Carolina. You have a, you have a very different experience, um, or are I,
3: you I, not seeing something in the No, I want to respond. You know, we, we just we're just a couple of degrees off. Um, I, I would say this: when when the when the conservative group of folks who don't want to talk about the fact that the criminal justice system is unequal or don't want to talk about police doing the wrong things at the wrong time in order to avoid talking about it. They say, don't talk to me until you fix your own stuff. Then come back and see me as though it doesn't exist. Well, first of all, that's wrong. We ought to be addressing the issue of the disparate treatment of the criminal justice system of African-Americans. In my state, we have more people in jail than anywhere else in America. I took you there, we went to Angola. There's 7,000 African-American men that are in a prison right now, a maximum security prison. The the, the, the distention that that causes, the alienation is huge. So yes, criminal justice reform is important and necessary. Yes, police departments have to learn how to protect and serve, they have to learn how to see people based on their behavior, not the color of their skin. By the way, just like we have to learn how to see the police by their actions and not necessarily by the uniform, we have a huge amount of work. And yes, we can do all of these at the same time, but it is also true that we have a huge number of African-Americans who are victims of violent crime and we need to find a way to stop that because their lives matter. Now, it's also true, he said, that people march all the time and the African-American community and the white community People get upset about crime and they show up at the mayor's doorstep and they say, you gotta fix it like I'm the only one. I created it and I'm the only one that can solve it, but that's okay. But I would just say as a general rule, the kind of pressure that I feel does not come to the fore. There are certain groups of people that meet African-Americans and whites that always are working on violence issue, but not the intensity and the level of prolonged, we're not taking this anymore. And this is true about, I'm not blaming this on just the black community, this is true about white folks too, who come to me and say, you gotta do something about that crime. And I'm like, well, what are you gonna do about it? And when are you gonna show up?
2: Well, I think, like, um, and I'll just speak to, for instance, like police violence. Um, I'll just say that um, there's a certain sort of feeling that you get when just a random criminal in your neighborhood perpetrates a crime. And then there's a very, very different feeling when uh, someone who you, uh, pay taxes to, to protect you, perpetrates a crime. You definitely are going to feel differently oh about and one should, yeah. than than the other. And so, if you're seeing, you know, a greater, you know, intensity, if you're seeing people coming directly to your door, I think that's because, you know, when you talk about, you know, intra-community violence you know, among people who live
3: next door to us, it's often focused on the community. It's often about what the community needs to do. Wait, let me be clear, but I am not at all. I have no problem with the marches around the country and the intensity of the marches around Ferguson and Baltimore. I think they're well placed when they're done when they're done, you know, in, in a safe way that all of that helps you. unify. I think they're great things. I'm not against that. I'm actually for it. And I think it's all great. All I'm saying is, and I'm speaking on behalf of young African-American men that cannot speak for themselves, and you know what, I can speak for them because I'm their mayor. They need champions. They need people to care about them, and we have got to find a way to figure out how the culture was developed, all, whoever had anything to do with it, and we have to change that walk that you took to school. That's what I'm trying to do in my city. How do we change that walk? Because it is crazy for all of our young boys and girls to be walking back and forth to school, and all they're thinking about is not how to I do it on my math exam, Not whether I'm going to make the football team, but am I going to make it home alive? Now I want you all to think about that. I want want you all to think about the freedom that you have in your lives not to be thinking about that kind of stuff during the day. And I don't want my kids in my city having to feel that way. And there is a lot that goes into thinking about how we change our patterns of behavior with each other and our institutions to make that a safe place for them. That's all I'm trying to talk about.
1: Two two final things before we go to questions from the audience. Uh, The first is... Assuming that you believe that this culture exists, how, do you break, how does society break that culture so that young African-American males walking to school can think about the things that you just talked about? The
2: society breaks the culture of self-preservation, as I call it, in the African-American community. And how is that? Uh, by the destruction of white supremacy in this country. It's just that simple. Um, we have very, very old vestiges and practices that continue into this day. Right now, the biggest uh, uh, social service uh, resource investment we have in the African-American community is our prisons. Uh, right now you know we God we were lucky that the, um, the Fair Housing Act actually got upheld. but right right now you know we have very very limited controls you know in terms of uh, uh, documenting how people are discriminated against in terms of where they can live uh, we have almost no sort of real survey data outside of academia in terms of job discrimination and things like that we have to start taking the structural forces that got us here Seriously, and I just I, I have, I have to say this. I'm sorry, Jeff, I don't mean to take too much time. No, no, but no. I think like there's a, 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 a problem here where we're talking about uh, the violence of the police and the violence that happens in the community as though they're two sort of mutually opposed things. What I'm trying to say is they actually are the same thing, they actually are the product of the same thing. Uh, The reason why the violence happens in the community, the reason why I had to take that long walk the way I did when I was a child, was because, and this is just the history of Baltimore, this is just a straight fact, somebody made a decision. The people of Baltimore made a decision, the federal government made a decision, that certain people were going to live in certain communities, and they were going to have more investment than other people. That's a policy decision. Just like uh, it was a policy decision that we made, that Freddie Gray, when he makes eye contact with a police officer and decides to run it, he can be arrested for that. That's a policy decision. They're actually part of the same thing. Let me ask, you this. Let, let me ask you
1: this and then I want the mayor to respond and then we'll go to questions. But, but So you're sitting with a, a mayor of, of a city who has who is term limited, you got three more years in your term. The, the, as effective as, as he is, <laughs> thank goodness it's a lot or thank goodness it's a little?
3: Thank goodness it's almost over. Oh, all
1: right. Uh, <laughs> as effective as he is, as well-meaning as he is, he's not changing structural racism in the United States of America. Right. Uh, and, and so what would you say to him to, in the next three years, what can you do within the confines of your city to actually make life better for African-American males? I mean, I'm, I'm, right, it's a practical right. question. Then I want you to answer that question yourself. But the, the practical question is, okay. he's, not gonna, he's not gonna end white supremacy.
2: Right, he can be a part of it though.
1: He can be, well, he is a part yes. of it, I think, but, yeah. but, but go to that. Well, well to that. the
2: first thing I would say is I've never been to New Orleans. So I want to you know, stay in my city, place, actually, right. Yeah. So I'm not gonna you know, necessarily give him political advice. The one, the one thing I will say though, and, and um, I, I, I hate saying this, but um, it took us you know, centuries to get where we're at right now. It's gonna take a long time to dig ourselves out. Uh, you're right, he can't do it. In the, Mr. Andrew can't do it in three years. You know, it probably will be a succession of mayors. You know? um, I, I am highly skeptical. You know, and I and I hate saying this. I don't mean any disrespect. You know, but I'm highly skeptical that within you know one or two mayoral terms, I don't know how long they give you guys down there. Um, you know, you can totally you know uh, uh, um, ameliorate a problem. that really goes back. I mean, literally centuries. You know, you can be a part of it. You can take one step forward. You can move us in the right direction. But I, I mean, we're talking about policies that at the local level, state level, federal level. I just, I'm, I'm doubtful.
1: Tell tell me if I'm I'm wrong about this. You're a very frustrated man. Uh, because sometimes, sometimes. but please you have a, a problem that
3: seems unfixable within the time frame that you have, is that a fair? I don't no, Well, no. I, first of all, I'm very hopeful about it. I, I do think it's fixable. I do think he's right that it's taken us a long time. You think to it's get fixable
2: one. in your three years? No, no. no. Okay.
3: But I'm just I'm just kind of the custodian of the thing right now. If you can't fix it, if someone doesn't call it and claim it and start it, you got to start somewhere. Somebody's got to uh, address the problem. And by the way, this is all, you see, I think sometimes people get really defensive when you say black on black crime, oh, you're blaming us for the crime. I'm talking about the victims, right? Because everybody gets into whose fault it is right away and why are you blaming me and what's my role in it? I tell people this about race and history. And by the way, I'm a kid from the South and I really feel like I have just as much a right to talk about racism and our history as anybody else does. And I think it's important that we all own this in a special way because we didn't all come to it in the same way. But I would say this so that we don't get into the history of whose fault it was. We, that, that, that issue may never get resolved, but I can tell you whose responsibility it is to fix it. It's all about responsibilities to fix it, part A. Part B, you have to start someplace. I have started a conversation. This is part of starting that conversation, and I do think it involves all of us. I agree with him that the institutions and how we deal with things that have to change from discrimination to jobs to redlining neighborhoods, but there's also a lot of personal responsibility in this as well. You know, somebody has used the phrase that if I knocked you off the chair, you know, last week, that's on you. But if we come back and you're still on the floor next week, you know, that's on you. I mean, that's on me, then that's on you. Or if someone broke your arm, you can yell and scream that they broke your arm. They're probably not gonna be the person that's gonna fix it. That doesn't mean we can't figure out other ways to get it fixed. And what we have to do in this country is think about all of the things that are necessary to produce an environment of peace that requires personal responsibility, it requires involvement from the faith-based community, it it requires finding a way to build strong families, however you define that, and it involves the things that we've talked about today is reorganizing our institutions that are not discriminatory, that are fair, that are open, that give people the opportunities to realize the dreams, and we have not had that in the country. That's why this discussion is important. So you asked me why I did this. The reason is this, because if you can fix this problem, I think this is the hardest of the hard, by the way. I'm not minimizing all of the other difficult problems we're having with the community and the police. We can fix it. But if you can fix this particular problem, it takes you into all of the other difficult areas because we can't fix this until we fix those. And I just think it's worth talking about.
1: Ta-Nehisi, I'm reading a level of dissatisfaction on your face about something that the mayor said. Um, Your face is pretty easily readable. Sorry. No, it's okay. It's one of of his many charms. the uh, personal responsibility as, uh, as a trope. No, I
2: think what he said about uh, what the mayor said about you know, knocking somebody uh, It is my fault if I knocked you off the chair. I didn't say it wasn't. I mean, but it, 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 no, it's never not my fault that I knocked I, you off the chair. I you never, know what I mean? But I never, but I I mean it doesn't it, cease, cease to be Here's the right, whole it never, issue. This it never is, is
3: every vulnerable
2: person, it never ceases to be my it, fault. That's
3: exactly right, which is why the other day I officially apologized for slavery on behalf of the city of New Orleans. There has to be a recognition. If there's going to be a reconciliation, there has to be a, a recognition and an, and an admission that, that somebody did something wrong, and an apology for it. And then you got to get to the next thing. If we stay into, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to engage in. It was not my fault. It was your fault. And you stay on the ground when you can stand back up, or you can stand back up with help. All I'm saying is that you, all of us have to get all of us out. If the African American community waits around for folks in the white community who don't know anybody to fix the problem. That's not how it's going to get fixed. White people of goodwill, other individuals of goodwill, African-Americans of goodwill are going to have to come together and find a pathway forward which doesn't involve it was your fault Now I'm going to sit around and wait. It has to be all of us can figure it out. And it kind of stinks because, yeah, you can say, well, I never put myself in this position. That's true. But personal responsibility is always a part of it. It's a small part of it, but it's an important part of it. But guess what? So is investments in institutions that give everybody an opportunity, which means great investments in public education, great investments in infrastructure, investments in housing, the things we need because then he's right Then how, what, how else would you expect anything but what you got, which is the violence. So we all had responsibility in producing the culture that exists, but we all have responsibility of getting out of it. And oh. I just think that that's... Uh, you know, I don't wanna say it's not debatable, but I just think that that's the obvious way to move, but we have to be willing to do it.
1: I, I wanna to go to as many questions as we can. I want I want these questions um, with a question mark at the end, please, um, there's somebody right there to uh, start, and then we'll come over here.
4: Hello, Mayor Landry, my name is Mary Pat Hector. Um, I've actually met you several times, I've been part of the City's United Initiative um, that you started with Mayor Nutter, but my question is, um, you say that when you know, if you fall off the chair, it's your fault, um, but as, well, something similar to that, um, but when you say that question and, and you say people need to take responsibility and do something, when I look at the news and see a lot of different African American young people doing something regarding gun violence and black on black crime or police brutality, they're labeled as thugs or they're not doing it the right way and they don't know what they're doing. Um, and, and, and as a 17-year-old girl who faces this and has an eight-year-old brother, um, and you know, if, if, if black people pick themselves up from their bootstraps and become successful, then they forget about their communities and they forget where they come from. And so I'm asking you, what do you think the solution is? What can we do? Because if we do something right or that we feel like we're making progression and but doing where, where something to solve down? these issues... Um, we're wrong, or we're do- not doing it the right way, or we are talking about race, and we're trying to fix the problem, um, but we are destroying our own communities. So what well, do you why think don't we let the him,
3: proper why, we got a lot of not, questions, let me, let I, me have them an answer. I wanna be really clear about this. First of all, I think everything you're doing is great, and I appreciate it, and I think that when you march and you do those things, that's, that's wonderful, that's a great thing, I don't think that's a bad thing. Um, but when I'm talking about personal responsibility, I'm talking about the young man himself who's about to shoot or get shot, in that moment, that individual has to think for a second. I'm not talking about, I, I never said, you never ever will ever hear me say, the African American community has got to pick themselves up by their own bootstraps. That's a complete punt and a fake and completely wrong. We in America have an obligation to stand up all American citizens and not just say, that's on you, that's completely wrong. But that's, I've never said that. And it's just interesting because I'm finding that when I say things and what people hear are really completely different things and they hear it from the position that they're in, Can you which put is why- eye
2: The whole thing about somebody. Yeah, position. what I I'm just, saying
3: is this. I just want to get clear as on if, 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 as, a if, this. a This is a chair. A chair. If, I, if you're sitting on a chair and I knock you off of the chair, that's my fault and that's on me. Now normally, what's that person gonna do? They're gonna walk away and they're gonna leave. If all you do is sit on the floor and you do nothing and you stay there, waiting for the person to come back and pick you up and nothing changes the laws of nature are that you're going to wind up staying there you got to do something to get up that doesn't mean that that i still don't have the obligation to come back and help you but guess what if i choose not to come back or i don't want to come back or i've decided to run off then that's on you it's only it's only a statement that everybody's got you're saying it's a cruel world and and nobody's going to help you at a certain point if the folks don't come back and help you who for some reason didn't like you because they pushed you off the chair first and all you do is sit there and wait for them to decide that they're going to have a transformation there is something you can do to help yourself it doesn't obviate the fact that the person made a mistake or that they were wrong or that they owe you the question is now well how do you get up and keep moving and guess what there are other folks that will come back and help that gets you into the institutional issue that's the only point it's not a, it's not an either or for us it's a both and
1: i had a mic out there um was that you yeah yeah you have the mic
0: Hi, yeah, i think you're the greatest i follow you In addition to structural changes, which take time, I think Jeff asked this, but I didn't really hear anything specific on a micro level, child to child. What do you recommend to do? What
4: about the icons in the black American community? Where are they? Do they have a role? Oprah, Jay-Z, whoever the kids relate to, can they do more in a very overt way?
2: Um, I think on a micro level, uh, I think, black folks are doing about as much as any human being would be doing in the position that we're in right now. I think black folks are doing just fine, you know. Um, it is never, it's fine, I, I, just, I just disagree with this. I, I disagree with the notion, um, with the idea that black people or any significant population of black people are sitting on the floor having been knocked off a chair and just waiting around. I don't think that's actually what's happening. You know, I think black people are struggling mightily, you know, uh, uh, in a situation that was put upon them. Uh, the people who have lapsed, I just, I hate repeating this to you guys. I hate saying, I don't wanna have this conversation with folks, but these are the facts. The people who have lapsed in terms of their debt to African Americans as citizens is us as a society and as a government. I mean, that, that's just the fact. There's never been any, there's no history of a lack of responsibility among black folks. Listen, we, we live in a country where the greatest, I, I don't know what, I guess you would say, you know, patron saint in our country is a man who got shot in the head for standing up for this idea of being nonviolent and being hopeful in terms of our relationship towards white people. I just saw two weeks ago a community of black people where a gentleman came into the church, pretended to be there you know, to worship and to wanna to be a part of the community. They welcomed him in and he shot them down in cold blood. And when he did this, he was well within a tradition and within a lineage of doing such things to black people. And to see those folks, within days, go into a courtroom and say, we forgive you. We forgive you. Now, I, I see the Confederate flag came down. I'm, I'm, I'm happy about that. But what I'm saying is, there's no lack of effort on behalf of black people. That's an effort right there. You know what I mean? To after that wait, to respond wait, in that on, way, hold on, hold on. that's effort. Wait, there's no lack of effort on our part. Let, let me, know, give, just let just let me
1: give Mitch a time to respond wait, 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 wait. and then I got one please, more question. Please, I,
3: I, I did not say nor that I try to intimate that the black community is sitting on the ground doing nothing. That is not what I said. And that's not what I intimated. I wouldn't be working on this if I thought that is what the issue was. There are lots of people, black and white, that are working on this issue. I simply say to you the fact that there are hundreds of young african Americans being killed on the streets of the city of New Orleans and across America. And that the same amount of intention that we're all paying, to the tremendous devastation in South Carolina, to the tremendous amount of disconnect between the police is not being visited on that, and we have to find a way to think about it. I'm simply saying, just as a matter of course, on a personal level, that if we keep waiting on people who don't think like us, or don't look like us, or don't like us to show up and help, and that's all we're waiting on, it's all a part of us coming together. I don't think that the country is as keyed into the issue of the number of African-American victims, I think, that it, I think that's a worthy thing to be thinking about. The message that I'm getting is, hey, man, leave that alone. Go worry about all the other things running the city, and because it's just an interesting thing and we can't get to how are we going to save these young men. I think that's a worthy and noble thing to be thinking about, don't you? So let's find a way to do that rather than saying to people, well, you don't understand and, and having all Let's let's figure out as a country that we want to save the lives of young african-american men and figure out how to do it and how to talk in a way that gets us into a positive place so that we can find specific things that all of us can do on the ground on a personal level not necessarily on the black community or the white community but all of us together
4: my name is uh, tina walls Uh, my sister is one of the little rock nine and um, that's important only because it's about taking Action action has always been taken by our community. Uh, I participate in a women's group, an African-American women's group, that has adopted a school in the Denver Public Schools that's primarily African-American free and reduced lunch. We are working in our community. But my question is this. In the 10 years post-Katrina, what kind of systemic change has occurred in the public school system, and in the ability of those without access in the past to get jobs?
3: Combination of a lot of things. First of all, you know that after Katrina, 500,000 homes were hurt, 250,000 were destroyed. The city was just basically on its back. We have been in the midst right now of rebuilding housing in every neighborhood uh, in the city of New Orleans. Some neighborhoods are coming back slower than others. Um, Poor neighborhoods are coming back slower and you see that but those are being reconstructed the entire school system we're building 1.8 billion dollars of new construction to give our kids in the city most of whom are african-american 21st century knowledge-based physically good schools and good teachers and in the healthcare delivery system we've moved from having a centralized bureaucracy where mamas had to go sit for 13 hours in the emergency room to get the baby's ears checked to 88 primary health care clinics and then finally What I call pathway to prosperity, where 52% of African-American men in the city of New Orleans are not working. That is not a sustainable model, it's not moral, it's not just, it doesn't make any sense. And so we're working with anchor institutions to make sure that when they have job openings, they connect to people in the neighborhood and then create job trainings to do those things. So those institutional changes that we talked about, we are doing in the city of New Orleans. I'll just say this, I can only be the mayor for eight years. This has been a historical problem that's gone on for hundreds of years in our country. And we have to take this pivot, this moment and pivot to the future and recognize that there are institutional barriers to African-Americans moving into a place where that culture that we talked about is not developed. And by the way, when I talk about people not showing up at city hall, I'm not just talking about African-Americans. I'm talking about whites. When there's a carjacking in the white community, man, all hell breaks loose. I promise you lots of people show up, but, When it's the murder of a young African-American man, nobody's talking. So it's the same thing. And this is not an indictment of one race versus the other. I'm just talking about as a people, people are not getting as excitable as the murder of a young African-American man, especially if the kid that killed him had some difficulty with the law too. And I'm just trying to call attention to their lives value just or or, or as much value as anybody else's in the United States of America. talking about
1: this as black on black, a way of
3: white people segregating the problem in
1: a kind of way? Saying it's it's over there, well, it doesn't.
3: I think it's obvious that we hear things from the perspective that we're in, and they're triggers to the words that we use. So we all have to get better at it. You don't want the result to be let's not talk about it, or let's not deal with it, or you go fix your stuff first and then come back and see me later. Those are not constructive ways to get to okay. What are we going to do now? Yes, we recognize it's a problem. Yes, it's important to us. And what do we all have to do to fix it? That's a better conversation to have rather than I don't like the words you're using blah, blah, blah. Let's figure out what the right words are if it's important. If this is not important, we can pass it by and you think the country's going to be okay. I just happen not to agree with that. I think this is a seminal problem that we have to deal with. Tanahasi, would you be more comfortable
1: talking about this as a black-on-black question if we talked about the Waco motorcycle gang shootout as white-on-white crime? I mean, or, or is it just, does does putting this in group setting just obscure the essence and the nature of the problem?
2: Well, first of all, I have no, I'm, I'm not uncomfortable talking about it. That's, that's I mean, i not to big up myself, but I wrote an entire book about growing up in Baltimore and my relationship with my dad and violence, which you all can buy. Um, so I'm not, I'm not, I mean, I've, I've spent most of, you know, a great deal of my career. So I'm but I not, mean the expression and, and sort of No, it think the I think the, I think the, I think the expression is, is, in fact, inaccurate. I don't think it's insensitive. You know, I don't think it's a mere, you know, problem of phraseology. You know, I think it's actually inaccurate. Most violence happens among people who live among each other. Again, if you have a group of people who, due to policy, are in a criminogenic situation, it's highly likely that the people that they are gonna kill are the people who are gonna live next door to them. It's not, so black, again, black on black crime well, me, is sort of, sort of positioned as, a, well, a, just, just let me get through this. Black on black crime is positioned uh, against this notion that at some point in time, the majority of violence done against black people was done by the Klan, but that, that actually was never true. It's always been true that the majority of violence uh, that you know, black people did to each other was around your neighbor. That's just that.
1: that. If there's one thing that you could do policy wise, policy wise, to actually break this cycle. Would it be massive housing desegregation? Would it be. What, what would it be? If, make believe you're a mayor for a day.
2: I don't know what I would do if I was a mayor. Well, I no, can really tell you what I would do if I was king. I well, mean, I don't know what I would do if I was a mayor. I actually think it's beyond mayor. I really believe that. I think, actually, I think wait, it's, it's, it's actually beyond mayor. You know? I really believe that. I can tell you what i do as king, though, easily. Ghibli,
1: he really right. wants to tell us what he'd do. Tell us what you'd do as king and then let King Landrew finish the Yeah, King ta
2: I'll tell you what King ta would do. We have a situation right now well, I believe the ratio, the incarceration ratio uh, of black to white is something like for every, you know, 8 to 10, it's like one, you know, one white person incarcerated. We have the largest, I mean, you guys already noticed. We have the highest incarceration, you know, uh, rate and just raw number in the country. China has about a billion more people. Uh, we have about 800,000 more actually incarcerated people. Uh, the incarceration rate for America is 750 uh, per uh, 100,000 or something like that. For black males, it's like 4,000. It's ridiculous. This is unprecedented. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a public policy disaster. I would immediately, immediately begin finding ways to get people out of prison. And by the way, I include violent, violent criminals in that. I don't just mean the uh, marijuana. What do you mean, violent? Well, the like, idea that, you know, like what a gun crime. A gun crime. I don't just mean the, the, the marijuana, you know, dealer who got, you know, three strikes. I mean, but, gun but crimes But an actual too. gun
1: crime. Somebody yes, actually yes, committed a gun yes, crime. Yes, yes, and yes, And you want to return them into the community. Yes, I
2: do. Yes, okay. I do. And I don't want to just, you know, let them out with no sort of support, with no sort of, you know, policy around, you know, how,
3: how can we get them I'm gonna affordable. Hurt and then, I'm going to hurt you here. You sound like a congressman. You're not going congress- to hurt me at all. No, no, you you're sound like hurt a congressman. Not a cane. You sound like like a congressman. Here's my problem. That's that's really nice advice. And you know, criminal justice reform is really important and we should do it. But this is how criminal justice reform works. You come forward with an idea. The folks on the other side say, I like it or I don't. You go to the state legislature, you go to Congress, you talk about it for two or three years and then eventually you either get it done or you don't get it done. And then in the meantime, 40 people a day are killed on the streets of America. Here's my problem. I don't talk in platitudes, I don't talk in philosophy, I don't talk about the black community and the white community, I talk about Joe or Jamal that's gonna get their head blown out tomorrow. My life is immediate. So I guess what I wanna know is- My life is immediate No, 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 but what I'm saying is as a mayor, as a mayor in terms of talking about- I'm an African American American male living in an African American community with a 14 year old son. I got that. It's as immediate for me What I'm saying to you is is this, is while we're changing all the institutional frameworks that we have to change, What I need to figure out is tomorrow in New Orleans, how I stop that young man from getting killed. That's what, that's what, what, so as everybody's talking theoretically, philosophically, institutionally, and how we move our country to where both you and I agree that it needs to go, we're on the exact same page. We may have a difference of opinion about how to get there. What I'm saying to you is there is immediate catastrophic epidemic that needs to be erased. And so this gets to the issue of well, okay, if the Calvary is not coming to save us, and I put us in the same category, what are we going to do in the community tomorrow? Tomorrow as fathers, as sons, as coaches to change the way that we reconcile the differences that we have. That is really about you Mayor, can call a personal gonna do whatever to change. Well, that. that's not true because you need I mean, to come to my city because let me tell you what we're doing. We have something called NOLA for Life. NOLA for Life is a five-part program. The first thing we're doing is making sure that every kid in New Orleans is part of our recreation program during the summer. We're making sure that they get fed. We're making sure that their enrichment programs when it's over, we're making sure that they have a job. We're making sure that we are now reconnecting the police to them. We are actually working. I'm not waiting for everybody else to change the world. As a matter of my personal responsibility, I'm connecting these young men. The other day I opened up a $20 million recreation center called Sanchez Center. We're bringing the kids in from the neighborhood and they're swimming and they're learning music and they're playing basketball. That is about how as my personal responsibility. I'm grabbing these individual kids and teaching them reconciliation. We're doing something called the welcome table where we're bringing whites and blacks together and actually sitting at a table talking through race in the city of New Orleans, which we've been doing for two years. I'm not waiting on Congress to change Paul Ryan and, and 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 whoever's talking about all of that stuff—that's what I mean when I say personal responsibility. I'm not waiting on somebody else to do it. We're doing it ourselves. Every one of those things moves the dial and will save a life.
1: Um, let me just say, uh, let me just say uh, two quick things. Uh, uh, the first is, is that I think you can see over the past hour why. Uh, my uh, colleague and friend Tanasi Coates has, uh, with his arguments and ideas, uh, challenged uh, and made millions of people uncomfortable and gotten millions of people in America thinking about these uh, uh, issues. And I think. Uh, let me also say that um, there is, uh, to the best of my knowledge, uh, exactly one uh, white politician in the South who is grappling in a serious way with these issues, and he's sitting next to me. And so I want to thank both of them thank very you. much for coming, and thank, thank you very you. much for thank coming you. today.
0: That was ta Coates, Mayor Mitch Landrew, and Jeffrey Goldberg recorded live at the Aspen Ideas Festival on June 30th, 2015. That was a rebroadcast of an episode that was originally released in August of last year. Starting next week, we'll drop a series of special episodes from the 2016 Aspen Ideas Festival. I'll hand over the mic to six podcast takeover hosts who will be on the ground at the festival. Podcaster Franklin Leonard, filmmaker Perry Peltz, journalist Emily Yoff, Jose Antonio Vargas, Maria Inajosa, and comedian Pete Dominic will interview festival presenters like Michelle Norris, Dan Savage, and Lawrence Lessig. The interviews will touch on topics including education, sex, crime and punishment, civil rights, and more. The special Takeover series ramps up during the festival next week. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcasting service. Discover more about the Aspen Ideas Festival at aspenideas.org. Follow the festival year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and myself and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson, Editorial Director of Public Programs. Thanks for listening.